What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And if you're listening to this, I just want to thank you, right? I want to thank you for whatever it is you've contributed, even if it's just being your time listening to our podcast or your glancing eyes over a social media post or spending some time on our website, living-corporate.com, checking out our merch, livingcorporate.shop, shoot, giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts, like whatever it's been, I just want to thank you. You're going to continue to hear dope conversations and look, make sure you keep listening to Living Corporate. We'll talk to you soon. Make sure you check out this next conversation. I promise it's fire. Peace. What's up, everyone? This is Shanisha from Living Corporate, and I'm so excited today to discuss with you racial equity. Are we advancing? And I have a guest that I think is extremely certified. You know, that's my favorite word. Extremely certified in this area. This is her zone of genius, right? So let me give you a little background on our guest. Our guest is the CEO of Harper Slate, a racial equity advisory firm focused on helping organizations and communities advance equity for some inequality for all. An experienced leader, I mean, very experienced, with over 25 years of career achievements that span across banking, labor and employment, law, collective bargaining, human resources, and state government, a private and public sector CHRO, adept in a multitude of HR disciplines. Our guest is experienced in managing multi-site operations, ensuring compliance with all federal and state employment laws, and employing comprehensive approaches that effectively align human capital priorities with the overall organizational strategy. Please welcome none other than Nikki Lanier. Hi, Nikki. Welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for that intro. I'm doing well. Excited about this conversation. Yes, definitely excited. So that bio that I just read, a little background of you, right, was small snippet. All right. There's so there's so much to unpack about Nikki Lanier. So if you could, please, because I don't like to shortchange people and you've done such great work. Could you share us a little bit more detail about who is Nikki Lanier? Oh, let's see. Who is Nikki Lynette? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, the bio was, was was fairly comprehensive in terms of the stuff and things of Nikki. What Nikki has worked in, where I've where I've uh, toiled, where I've had the pleasure of of hopefully being a contributive member of society. That has happened in legal spaces, starting out as a labor and employment attorney in Florida, where I went to law school. The bulk of my career has been in human resources, and I've been blessed to work for big companies and small and uh, worked on the East Coast, West Coast, uh, public sector, private sector. I've been the chief HR officer for three different organizations. Um, But probably more interestingly, I worked for seven years for the Federal Reserve and not in HR or legal capacity. I did macroeconomics and monetary policy. Go figure, right? It's like nothing that I had done ever before in my entire life, but but it positioned me so well for the work that I do today. Uh, and that is helping organizations understand how to contextualize racial equity as a macroeconomic imperative. Um, beyond that, I am a, a Christian. I am a, a mother. I am a wife. I am a daughter to uh, aging parents. And that has its own 
you know, complications and blessings. And so there's just, you know, all of the things that many of us are navigating in our, in our blended life, uh, life, life, and then work life. Yes, absolutely right. So a good bit of work-life balance. And I definitely think, as you mentioned, your seven years work for the Federal Reserve. I'm a big believer of all things work together for our good, right? So nothing is wasted. And I can see that from here from the great work that you are doing to impact our communities and then organizations as a whole. Uh, so just doing my little research, being a little bit of a creep <laughs> in the background. <laughs> you know, read a little bit more about who is Nikki, who's Nikki Munir, what does she do, what she's done. Um, you mentioned that your focus for advancing racial equity was an assignment passed down in utero. So what does that mean for you? This is passed down like a birthright. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful question. Yeah, I do. I say that a lot because, you know, even though I've been trained to do a whole lot of things mm -hmm. at my core, I am a child born to two parents who were very steeped in the civil rights movement. My father probably more violently so than my mother. And so my dad was in an organization called SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, when he was in college. And those moments, those, those years where he was in SNCC, and this was in the uh, late fifties, early sixties, um, in his late teens, early twenties shaped him to this day. And his assignment, his desire was to be a black man who could vote and to, uh, assure that other black people could vote rights ostensibly that at that time, well, and even now that we theoretically had, but not without context and without some sort of fight to be able to do so in an unfettered way. That's all he wanted. His entire assignment was to try to get black folks to be, to be able to do what they, uh, what the constitutional amendment said they could do and, and just weren't able to. So for that, for that desire, just to be able to vote, my father has been beaten by police officers. He's escaped two lynching attempts. He has been jailed. He has been spat upon. He's been shot at. Um, and, and, all in his home country, right? The, the only country that he's ever known. And my mother had uh, didn't have the same kind of violent experiences, but she worked with the NAACP in Montgomery, uh, Alabama in the 60s and um, did quite a bit of work and tr trying to support those who were doing the marches and who were out uh, crossing bridges literally and figuratively. And so uh, I've got that understanding of what it means to try to live in a fullness, in the fullness of what humanity is supposed to promise us. That context, understanding that as an only child from those parents, having heard those stories my entire life, coupled with the fact that I am a product of and grew up on the campus of Hampton University, historically black college in Virginia. Both of my parents taught at Hampton. And so growing up inside of like this incubated, beautiful bounty of black academic richness and you know around black folks that are talking constantly about how we ought be enriched in our beauty and our intellect and our like the scholarly potency of of how we can think about the amplification of black people that was also a part of my rooting growing up so when i talk about this past being passed to me in utero while i started out practicing labor and employment and i did all that in hr in the end um, in the end, I am a seeker of justice. I am a utilitarian at heart. And my, my desire, both spiritually and in a naturally, is to assure that all people are seen as equally human, especially my people, Black people. 
Oh, that is beautiful. Oh, that is beautiful. I, I, I genuinely love that. Um, from hearing your father's background, your mother's background, and then of course, I'm always going to show love to the HBCUs. I'm a family grad, so it's all love to all HBCUs, right? And just being able to go around, to grow up around that enrichment and to carry on that legacy, like that's just so profound in the work that you do now, right? So again, like nothing is wasted. So uh, let, let me dive in here. You worked in various sectors, like going yep. back over uh, the various organizations that you work with. How does racial equity differ across those organizations? I'm not sure if you'll be able to speak to all of them, but maybe just a general consensus of how does racial equity differ? across those organizations are, are some of the organizations actually all in all inclusive some one foot in one foot out like how how exactly does that that look uh okay i'm gonna answer that in two ways and i'm hoping that one of them or maybe a combination of the two gets close to what you're asking the first thing is let me let me first define how i anchor our work around racial equity so what does that mean racial equity means for me proportional fairness that takes into consideration the cultural and historic realities that have beset people of color as distinct from all other people and works to remedy the same. So there's three components. It is proportional fairness, which by definition is not fairness. It is proportional fairness. It is not same being doled out. Two, that proportional fairness sits on top of an understanding of what has happened specifically to people of color. And based on that understanding, it is remedial and its focus. It looks to uh, remediate, to repair what has been broken um, by the absence of understanding what has happened to black people or actually what has happened to black people. Okay, so when you ask the question about what indus how industries differ, I would answer that by saying there really is no difference. Mm -hmm. Um, because the conundrum is a human one, meaning we as human beings drawing breath today, all of us who are inhabiting the earth, inherited this narrative that says Black people are not equally human to white. Mm. That is a narrative upon which all of these laws and policies and belief systems and thoughts and ideals and behaviors rests where we are always kind of left out and feeling marginalized and muted and stunted and diminished and the various manifestations of that starting from slavery to today, it sits on top of this premise that black people are not equally human to white. Um, and so when you think about remediating that ideal, nobody's getting that right. Wow. Like nobody's getting that right. Wow. It's just, it's just too daunting. And we've never framed the work in that way, which is why, in my opinion, we haven't really approached real remedy. We've tried to attack, you know, lay laws on top of it and lay policy on top of it. But we know now that there's all kinds of violations to law and policy that still work to our detriment. And so we've never dealt with the sentiment underneath the um, the realities around why we feel such a visceral difference in terms of how we're navigating at least our black American life over here. So I don't think anybody's getting it right. Um, at least not yet, but I will say who's getting it wrong the most. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a way to say it. 
Well, who are most disappointed in, most disappointed by, in terms of industry, it's financial services, hands down. Wow. Financial services. So why financial services? Mm-hmm. Um, because of their long history, um, dating back to the Freedmen's Bank, Freedmen's Bureau, long history post-slavery of, of effectuating law policy for the sole purpose of eviscerating black economic well-being, mm-hmm. the sole purpose, and not on mass as an industry, really doing much to remedy that. Um, and they've had the long, they've had the most recent and most acute policy stance that was negatively impacting black people mm-hmm. without real remedy in the manifestation of um, redlining. Mm. Right. So just like the basics of how money works, the, you know, when and where you can qualify for a loan, how you can realize um, a yes or no from a black, from a from a banking institution to realize a black hope and dream. Um, there are far too many examples from an ideological construct of financial services, industry, banks um, still finding their way toward no. Mm-hmm. And only finding their way toward yes in the context of what is minimally required for the compliance check that they're on. So, and I'm saying this, I, I feel like I, on some level, I can be a little bit more condemning and critical because this is the sector from which I just hailed mm-hmm. Federal Reserve. And that's most of what I observed is that there's just far too much apathy, particularly with the very industry that caused the most harm to black and brown people and black and brown communities. So that's my super depressing answer. It's not, you know, it's not depressing. It's, it's. I think it's. You've definitely colored the picture in a bit more. I would say because when I think about even with my generation and we think about finances and just getting into the whole dive of that and what financial services are there, purchasing homes. There's so much that we're still learning that the generations before us they just didn't get. All right, so we're diving deeper into. University, YouTube University. <laughs> you know, we're trying to really do our research and understand. I don't think there's enough of black and brown people in that industry that could really help educate us. Like there's there's a, a gap there. So I, I don't think it's depressing. I think you just colored in a little bit more for us. You add a little bit more texture to it, right? And I, I think it's it's very important for our listeners definitely to be able to tap in and, and understand that. So yeah, can I let me just add one one quick thing on that? Because uh, in general, when we think about what has happened, all of the policy, legislative enactment that supported the mm-hmm. presumption that black people are less than human and therefore don't deserve rights in any manifestation, the financial services mm-hmm. industry um, and others respond to that by thinking that they can program their way out of what policy has broken. So said differently, mm-hmm. there's almost like a charitable poor black folk. Let me teach you about financial literacy. Let mm-hmm. me give you a program for a home buyer uh, initiative. Let me give you a, a, um, a special, you know, three week seminar on, how not to how to save and spend more more judiciously, as if it wasn't policy that broke us to begin with like from a financial standpoint. So you can't assign program to remediate policy and all the residue that left that's left from that. You have to reset. 
from a policy standpoint, everything that you do, all the decision makers at the banks, at these banks need to understand the lived experience of, of black and brown people. There needs to be a presumption that when black and brown walks in the door, the answer will be yes, unless there is a compelling reason why there is a, you know, why? Because of what we uniquely broke, right? right. And so I, I mean, super, super critical, very, very disappointed in what I continue to see as almost this charitable, apathetic program doling out goodness on high mm -hmm. um, financial services in particular. So, no, there's no, that. that's good. No, that's good. So, you being the CEO of Harper Slade, right? Could you share with us more about your organization? What do you guys do? And what can organizations expect when they connect with you? Yes, so we are a racial equity advisory firm. Um, we delve into the area of DEI, that is the other two letters, diversity and inclusion to a degree. However, we squarely focus on helping organizations understand how to cultivate environments where black and brown talent can thrive. Far too often, um, particularly on the issue of race and or difference in general, um, organizations believe that the remedy to assuring they are more diverse is to bring in more diversity, bring in more people of color, more people who are not basically white, male, heterosexual, able body. Anyone who's not that will bring them in and will be good, right? Mm -hmm. Not realizing, especially on the topic of race, that most organizations are inhospitable to the way black and brown potency manifests. So it's so important that, and I'm not saying that this is not like people are not well-meaning and well-intended, but in a world where so much of the way we live, so much of what's determined to be good or bad, so much of what's determined to be professional or not is informed by white social norms, mm -hmm. Um, when black and brown people show up inside of environments where they have never been historically represented, there is a presumption that you just kind of fall in line, that you laugh the way that we laugh, that you sit the way that we sit, that you wear your hair the way that we wear our hair, that you speak with the same intonation that we do, that your cadence and your gait, all of that is more similar than not. And where dissimilarity manifests, mm -hmm. particularly in the context of race, it becomes very uncomfortable. So we help organizations understand that it has to be more than you just bringing in more black and brown folks before you start doing that because they're going to leave, right? There's a reason why you haven't had them here to begin with. Let's start dealing with the environment that must be cultivated to assure the full activation of their competencies and their potency, our competency potency, when we get up in here, right? Mm -hmm. So we just kind of help understand what behaviors, norms, belief systems are already here that need to be examined and, unpack and unpacked and um, interrogated to assure that we are cultivating an environment for that thriving to happen. That's one thing that distinguishes our work. And then the second thing is that we focus a lot on economics, the economics of it. So first of all, your organization, this is superior, right? Like this is top tier. And the work that you guys are doing is so unique in its own way, right? Because just like you said, many of the organizations are looking to bring in more black and brown mm -hmm. people or they're looking at diversity, however that may be framed or mapped out for them. But what is like one critical piece 
organizations are missing when we think about racial equity? I think what most organizations are missing is an understanding that racial equity and D and I, so DEI Mm -hmm. in general, exists inside of organizations designed to kill it. Mm -hmm. Because DEI is asking, similar to racial equity, that we as human beings look at other human beings who are darker than us Mm -hmm. and assign to them the full presumption of humanity and all of the rights and privileges that come with that on every occasion, at every time, without question and without context. It's not to say that we're asking people to be liked or even loved or respected. It's just, can you see me as fully human all of the time, whether I'm in front of you in the boardroom or I am sitting next to you at the PTA meeting or I'm standing next to you in the grocery store? Mm -hmm. Is that presumption following me? And the answer to that is no, it doesn't. We all come out of the womb with a narrative assigned to us. A black and brown narrative tends to be more deficit rich. Most organizations don't acknowledge that. They think for whatever reason, inside of these hollowed walls, inside of this work environment, racism is not already in here. Marginalization, muting, stunting, and diminishment of black people isn't in here. And if we erect the right policy statement and language and lay on top of that, a great uh, training program, then it won't ever come in here without recognizing that it already is here. And so the work is getting it out or at least acknowledging it and then bringing it in, like, and then you can bring them up. So the sentiment that's already in place about people of color must be unearthed and understood, in my opinion, at the same time, if not before you start bringing in droves of black and brown folk. I mean, the way you just laid that down, the way, the, I mean, the way, you know, it's almost kind of like one of those church mothers, you know, they speak to you so kind and it's soft, soft, soft tone. And they're like, they just got me together. They just got, I think you just got a lot of organizations together in your statement then. I mean, that is so true. And as you mentioned, why many of us who are black and brown are not staying, like you're not being able to retain it. So... <laughs> I just think about doing virtual calls and you kind of hear that microaggression or the microaggressions that happen or in the workplace, those microaggressions that happen, as you mentioned, they want you to look a certain way, conform to a certain way, like it doesn't exist. We're going to have this great policy put out. We're going to have these different resource groups put out here so you can feel included. And it's like, but when I get on the one-on-one or when I'm interacting with my colleagues that I'm not getting that same I'm not getting what you've written down in your policy. That's not what's happening at all. Um, So, so yeah. And what I think is, you know, what many of the organizations, right, following the death of George Floyd, so that was like so huge and significant, as amongst as many others are huge and significant as well. Many companies made commitments for advancing racial equity internally with, as you mentioned, some of those resource groups, different policies that are written up, but the momentum over time has decreased. How can organizations recommit or pick back up from where they left off? Uh, so I think it starts with the framing of how you how you give context to what DEI or what racial equity is supposed to be in your workplace. Uh, because 
racial equity is a fundamental resetting of human to human engagements. It is a premise. Um, it requires almost a jettisoning of existing ideals and presumptions and stereotypes uh, and the invitation of new ways to believe and new things to think about and new ways to behave as it relates to how we think about race. We didn't treat it like that. We treated it like a crisis. Wow. Right? And so crises, crises, yes, have a beginning and an end. Mm -hmm. They're finite. And I've been in enough organization, corporate organizations and enough leadership roles to have watched and participated in how, how capitalist systems respond to, to crisis. And it's, I mean, we're, we're good at it. We're good in terms of uh, like American capitalist systems. We take crisis. I'm talking about we are in the war room. We are throwing all kinds of resources. Oops. We're establishing a vision for what we're going to get, how we're going to get through this. We're aligning resources. We're making sure that our capability is being built. We're training folks. We're sending folks over to this uh, program. We're getting folks ready to manage this crisis. But when the crisis is over, we are back to where we were. So I think because we saw this, not, I think instinctively, we saw what happened with George Floyd. I'll, I'll call out Breonna Taylor specifically because I'm here in Louisville. Uh, uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, we saw what happened in 2020 and we saw the culmination of that while we were all sitting down in our living rooms, terrified of this thing called COVID. So there was an emotional vulnerability with us anyway. And then you layer on top of that, the 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 visual taking in of all of this horror um, that black people uniquely were experiencing. And it hit us differently. It, it hit us the American psyche differently mm -hmm. so that what we responded to was the crisis of it and not the transformational undertaking um, and the kind of humanity resetting moment that it should have been. So I think to begin, it's about how do you frame this work? Now, let me say one last thing on that. So the, the other thing that I think is important is I always talk to our clients about, you know, diversity and inclusion are employee engagement strategies. And in my opinion, they are the employee engagement, engagement strategy of the future, because if you think about when you bring people into an organization and they are different, meaning diverse, and how they feel about work and how work feels about them, that is the inclusion, that activates how I can feel engaged at work. And once I'm engaged, then you get the best of my discretionary effort, which leads to more innovation, which leads to more competitive organization. So it is in the employer's interest to make sure that I can find my way toward engagement, even inside of organizations that never contemplated me. That's the diversity and inclusion strategy, but racial equity, because of the browning of the country, because America's getting blacker and browner, not any whiter, and because the, the workforce to come will evermore be darker, racial equity is the workforce and talent strategy of the future. So that's another way that I help them frame the way they think about this and not only social justice or not only right thing to do, neither of which, by the way, capitalist systems know what to do with. Mm -hmm. They're not built to respond to that framing of arguments, but they know a heck of a lot about employee engagement and about workforce and talent development strategies. And they know a lot about the economy and racial equity, racism is a threat to our nation's economy. Wow. So that's that's part of how we think about it and how I would ask, uh, how I think people 
everybody should think about it that way because it makes the most sense. <laughs> it really does. It really does. And I, I, I think the way you break it down is so clear and it can be well received, right? And I know most times for our fellow other fellow colleagues, sometimes it could be a little bit hard for our white colleagues to receive this type of information because I think for them, and I know um, some articles that I have read in the past, mentions about white privilege and to listen to you tell me about how an organization receives me or what my experiences are versus yours, they can get a little, uh, I think it can be a little overwhelming um, to receive. Yeah. So sure. for sure, go yep. back. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone really break down the crisis part for organizations, because I, I definitely think that was the response. It was like a crisis for a year and a half. It was like, hey, we're going to increase this number of Black women, this number of Black men, this It was just like an ongoing percentage that they just want to throw out there. And I think it was to keep everyone calm, right? Like, hey, they're thinking about me. This is not something that they're just brushing under the rug. Yeah, many of us are all in arms and upset, but hey, we still have to perform. With a smile on our face, yeah. like this experience never happened. Like I just did not watch this nine minute plus video on my lunch break before I have to jump into a meeting and continue with business as usual. Right. And I think for right. me, the organizations they have just continued as business as usual. Like, yes, we still have equity, you know, maybe as one of our pillars or as a part of our organization, but to really speak to it and to do the work, I think for many, I think they may just be overwhelmed with that. It's a lot for them to unpack and that that framework is broken. So now how do I go back and fix it? That may just be too much. We'll continue to do what we're doing and hopefully everyone will be at ease. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your organization does a lot of work and you have two programs, uh, two, I want to say global programs, correct? For black women and for white women. Could you share with us about those two programs mm-hmm. that you all offer? Happy to. Um, though, let me just let me just also punctuate our all of our work is global. Uh, you know, we, yes. we have you. clients all over. I've spoken at conferences, so we 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 love clients anywhere they 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 from wherever they might hail. They're global. How yes, global global yes. However, uh, so on those two programs, we've just launched this year. We'll be launching one and have launched one. It's, one of them is called the Slade Woman. It's a nod to Harper Slade, S-L-A-Y-E-D, the Slade Woman. And that is a, uh, co- a group coaching program specifically for Black professional women who are navigating corporate spaces and not quite sure how to do so successfully. Um, and so our tagline is where ripening meets respite. And uh Oftentimes, I know for me in my career, I, I just got all kinds of feedback, right? No matter what industry I was in, I always got the feedback Then we know it's true, kind of inconsistent, the universal feedback around Black women, you're too intimidating, you're too outspoken, you're too this, you're too that. People think you should fill in the blank. You come off as fill in the blank, right? So we're in constant, you have to fix yourself mode, mm-hmm. constant in need of repair. Something is always wrong with us per our employer's expectations and and social norms. And to be honest with you, sometimes they're right. Yeah. Like sometimes it's actually some fair feedback, mm-hmm. but it's hard to discern that because it comes inside of this cloud that feels so off-putting and judgmental and dripping with stereotype and presumption that just feels uncomfortable. So you're not quite sure what nuggets like, okay, wait, now 
three of the things you said, well, uh, probably things I actually need to work on, but the other 25 is a whole hot mess of racism, right? So <laughs> so I, now I'm like, ah, what do I do? So yeah, so anyway, the, the idea is I, because again, I see racism as an economic imperative. I see the amplification and acceleration of black and brown people as the priority for our of our lifetime. I wanna make sure that black people, black women specifically, are ready to move into the kind of economic strata that we have to, honestly, that we have to in order for our economy to continue to thrive. And so that means get your feedback from me, like me and the folks who are doing this work, the other four, there's four of us, four black women coaches from a number of um, industries who are meeting with these amazing women. We started on February 21st with our first cohort and uh, we meet every other Tuesday for six months. And we have all kinds of great sessions on professionalism and race, space, and grace. That's one of our sessions that we're doing. Um, how to navigate narratives, how to think about leadership and, in our own right, and then how to hear feedback, how to give feedback, how to manage up. And then we actually have like just talk time where we're just like unpacking. Okay, so what happened at, week, at work this week, girl? Who said what? No way. Oh my God. Right. So we do that and like, okay, well, here's how you handle it. Here's how you handle it. So we're doing that with black women. Then I'm super excited about this one too. Later this year, we're launching another program called the Rare Woman Collective. And it is a program suite for the inclined white woman who wants to become a better racial equity advocate at work, at home, and in community. And we're launching that program in Louisville, November 2nd through 4th, um, three days. We're bringing 200 women here from all around the country um, who want to be a part of this work and are looking for a, a kind of a, a cocooned community of white women to work with us, me and my coaching team to help advance real competencies um, in this space. Oh, this is phenomenal. Like, this is phenomenal. I'm like super excited listening in. Like, this is phenomenal. How, so how can our listeners who would like to participate, how can they sign up? How can they register? What do they need to do yeah. to be a part of either program? Yes. Well, first follow me on social media and Harper Slade because we we let's listen, we we do all kinds of uh sharing of all of this information on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, uh wait, what else? Is there something else? Maybe maybe no, TikTok sort of Instagram, Twitter. Nope, we're not on Twitter. It's a little bit of TikTok. I'm not great on TikTok, let me be honest. But the other ones, like LinkedIn especially, Facebook. So I have a page, Nikki Lanier, and then, of course, Harper Slade. So we have all the information out there. Slade Woman, if you're interested in the Slade Woman Coaching Cohort for Black Professional Women, that's a whole website, sladewoman.com. Um, Rare Woman Collective Live is going live in about six weeks. We're going to start registering people. White women who want to be a part of this work can register for that event and get their hotel booked and come on down to spend three days with us in Louisville in November. Um, and or they can reach out to me by email at admin at harperslade.com. Admin, A-D-M-I-N, at harperslade.com. Hey, if you have not gotten online already as you're hearing her like put this out you need to do that you need to go ahead okay pause <laughs> open up your safari or you know whatever android you would use no no offense <laughs> whatever you <use. laughs> and go and sign up go and register and if you're you're looking um 
for the, over the next six weeks. Hey, go ahead and pin that in your calendar so you can go ahead and register. But yes, these are awesome programs that are global because Harper Slate is global that I think you all should definitely make sure that you tap into and register to be a part of and be educated. Have moments where you can relax, let your hair down, but still at the same time, uh, work on your development, your professional development for sure. So Nikki, I know we've talked about a lot. I feel like I could talk to you forever. I honestly feel like, I don't know when you're going to put out a book or if you have a book coming. I don't know. I don't know. I can listen to you on Audible all day. <laughs> like, oh yes, I, what you're giving me, it's, it's, it's everything. It's everything. So I want to make sure that I touch on every point from you. Is there any final thoughts that you would like to share and you have not touched on that you think is valuable information that you would like to share with our listeners? Any takeaway? Yes. Yes. Two, two, and I'll try to make these pretty quickly, pretty quick. First is I want to talk about the economic implications and why it is in America's best interest that Black America thrive. Honestly, here's why I say that. By 2045, America will be Blacker and Browner. And that is true, especially of the available workforce, right? So whoever is in the available workforce should also be saturated in the middle class. That's the model upon which policy frameworks work, meaning monetary policy, Federal Reserve, fiscal policy, like Congress, how they set policy is looking first at how well the middle class is performing. Mm -hmm. What's its saving and spending look like, home ownership, higher education attainment rates, all the things that are indices of well-being and some level of economic fluidity. By the For the first time ever, by 2045, we will be relying on Black people and Hispanic people specifically, not just because they are uh, the majority in the available workforce. But that means we, they, must also be saturated, well-represented in the middle class. Mm -hmm. We have never, neither one of those groups, Black folks or Hispanic folks, have never been meaningfully represented in middle class. And so that means if you have an unstable middle class, that means Social Security is now um, uh, possibly unstable. That means that our G7 footing could be compromised as as our uh, geopolitical footing. And then also when you think about just the basics of how policy frameworks work around money, stable class, middle class is super important. Black and brown have to be represented in it. The biggest impediment to black and brown getting in middle class right now and has always been racism. Mm -hmm. And that's not the world according to Nikki. That's the world the Federal Reserve has studied that. Um, Mercer, other larger uh, HR firms have studied that, that uh, racism is the biggest threat to black and brown finding their way toward middle class or median income earners. That's one thing. So I want people to, to be very clear that it is in white America's interest that black and brown America thrive henceforth and forevermore. Second thing is racism is an ideal. It is an ideology. It is a lie that we have all been sold. Mm -hmm. And we never corporately and communally um, dismantled it. We've never jettisoned it, but it is the enemy, not a person, right? Yeah. So I, this is where my, my, my Christianity, my God hat, my grace comes in. What we have to be careful of is vilifying white people in furtherance of racial equity. And it's easy to do that, mm -hmm. to be honest, very easy to do that, especially in how we talk about this and who we decide gets to be in the conversations, who has to sit on the sidelines. This is part of the reason why we're moving forward with this rare woman collective for the white for white women who are inclined mm -hmm. toward this work um, is because we want to set properly 
this, the proper place for who the enemy is. And the enemy is the ideal, not a person. So white people and black people have a right to be equally mad at it because racism has stolen from all of us. It clearly affects black and brown folks more acutely, but white people lose inside of racism too. Society loses inside of racism. We know that it's cost $16 trillion in lost GDP in the last 20 years just because of race-based policy, race-based behaviors and belief systems have run amok and have always had our country in a chokehold. So I'm just saying all that, like this is an opportunity for us to really kind of come together and think very differently about who we are or what we are at war with. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing, sharing those final thoughts. I, I definitely think that's food for thought and that many of our listeners can take a moment to ponder on and, you know, continue to have the conversation with your with your family, with your friends, if your others, however, because the, the dialogue must continue because we have to continue to make yeah. sure that we're educating ourselves, educating each other and making sure that this doesn't continue to, you know, go on from generation to generation as much as we can. Bring it back to almost not existence, right? But we know that it's out there. Mm-hmm. I think it's very much alive <laughs> and living um, within oh, many of our organizations and our communities. So the more that we uh, educate ourselves and arm ourselves with the right information, the right information, I think we can go a long way and make sure that we are advancing for sure. Are, are, are there any shout outs? Yeah. Any shout outs? Oh, I just, I want to shout out my team. I mean, li- listen, I got to, sh- I got to, they, they are an incredible group that is just so fluid. I mean, I got a ton of amazing utility players that are just like, put me in coach. We are building this thing as we're flying it in some respects. And uh, it's just been all God breathed. And it's just been a blessing to be able to work with the the team that I've been able to amass. Many of you came early in the early days of Harper's We're only a year and a half old, but early as I was incubating this idea and we're like, I'll just do whatever you need. You don't even have to pay me. Right. So I just, it's just been wonderful. So shout out to the whole team at Harper Slade and Nikki Lanier Holdings, which is a whole other group of folks that we're working with. So I'm just so super, super excited to work with these folks. Awesome. Absolutely. So shout out to the team. Yes, ma'am. For, for believing and the vision that Nikki has been given and the great work that you guys are doing. Just also strength of just you. And I think that speaks volumes too when you mentioned about, you know, coming in off of no pay. So that's just off the strength of you and, and, and what you're doing, what you're putting out there into the community. And again, nothing is wasted. And this is a passion, right? A birthright that was passed down. So I could definitely see that going much, much further. Um, so <laughs> that's our show. Thank you for joining us on Living Corporate Podcast. Be sure to follow Nikki on all platforms. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Living Corporate, Twitter at Living Corp underscore pod, and subscribe to our newsletter through www.living-corporate.com. If you have a question you'd like for us to answer in the show, make sure you email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. Please, guys, make sure you write us in. I would love to to read some of those newsletters. Um, This has been Shanisha, and you've been listening to the, with the emphasis on the, Nikki Lanier. Please check her out at Harper Slade. Peace. And we're back. Listen, you don't want to go nowhere. The content we got lined up for y'all is so exciting. Make sure that you follow us everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Google us, Google Living Corporate, and just follow whatever pops up. You know what I'm saying? Check out the website if you haven't already. 
Make sure you continue to follow Living Corporate. Tell your friends about it. If you are a historically marginalized person, again, black or brown person, queer, differently able, visible or invisible, first generation, or if you're an aspirational ally, meaning you're a white person or a white passing person um, or per- a person who, who, again, like lives as a white person and you're seeking to um, understand how to better show up as an ally, you're a man, you're someone in some type of majority group. Guess what? We all exist in some type of privileged space. And if you're looking to be a better ally in this, in these spaces to create more equitable places to work, living corporate is a resource for you. And if you know people who need this type of education, again, it's passive education, like through just having real authentic conversations, yo, share this with somebody, share this with your network, share this with your friends, your neighbor, your, your coworker, your supervisor, your direct report, share this with your, your, your skip level. Shoot, share it with your boss's boss. You know what I'm saying? Um, in the meantime, Make sure you cop some merch. You know what I mean? We got hoodies on deck. All right. Livingcorporate.shop. You know what I mean? And um, yo, just 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 rock with us. And again, I can't be I can't I don't even I don't even know if I could be more grateful. Um, I'm confident I could be. But just know I am very thankful. And I and I and I share this and I, I, I do speak on behalf of the network to say thank you. Um, until next time, y'all love peace. Catch y'all soon. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.